Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this February 8th, Wednesday. Did you watch the State of the Union address last night? I've got to tell you, I think it's the best speech I heard Joe Biden make. And here's the weird thing. When he was heckled and harassed by the Republicans, as he was reasonably often, despite uh, Kevin McCarthy sitting behind Joe Biden, trying to shush them and saying, shaking his head and going, no, no, no. Yeah. Instead of throwing him off his game or derailing him, the heckling seemed to energize him. It seemed to light a fire under him. He was amazing. It was like he was thriving off of it, like it was jet fuel for him. It was dark Brandon at his finest last night. Um, A performance that, frankly, I don't think a lot of people thought he was capable of. It really was terrific. And I have to tell you, um, one of the big uh, controversies of the night when there was a lot of heckling from the Republicans was when he talked about the fact that some Republicans wanted to sunset, you know, sail it off into the sunset with Social Security, that they wanted to cut it, that they wanted to make it a limited program, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene was yelling, liar, liar, but... And he said, you know, I'm not going to say who said it, but it's you want to find out, you contact my office. And it was Rick Scott, Rick Scott, he of the Senate Republican pursed strings, who was supposed to have the game plan for getting more Republicans elected, put out a plan that said Medicare, Medicaid and Social Security should be subject to sunset laws, should be, at the very least, have to be renewed like, oh, every five years. Actually, Ron Johnson from Wisconsin said that he thought Social Security should have to be voted on by Congress every year. Yeah, I know. You know what what kind of chaos that would be. So before I go any further in what Biden said, Uh, I want to play for you a very brief clip of an interview Rick Scott did with the Fox, Fox Sunday morning news program, where even the Fox anchor was appalled that in an election year, Rick Scott would be proposing these incredible uh, cuts to Social Security. Listen to this recently put out an 11-point plan to rescue America, two of the big points of which are, quote, all Americans should pay some income tax. It also says all federal legislation sunsets in five years. So that would raise taxes on half of Americans and potentially sunset programs like Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Why would you propose something like that in an election year? Sure. Well, John, that's, of course, the Democrat talking points. It's a no, no, it's plan. in the plan. It's in well, the plan. But, here's, but here's this thing about reality for a second. It's First of all, let's talk but, about but, but Medicare. Senator, but, Senator, hang on. John. It's not a Democratic talking point. It's in the plan. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, indeed, Mr. Scott, Senator Scott. It was in the plan. And that's what President Biden made reference to in his speech last night. You know, Republicans talking about sunset and Social Security and what had been a rumble was suddenly um, out of control. I mean, they were like shouting, no, no, not us, liar, liar, liar. And I don't know whether President Biden's speech was deliberately written this way or not. But um, he goaded them. They responded. And he boxed them in. It was brilliant. It was masterful. If it it was done done off the cuff, then Joe Biden is our guy. If this was how his speech was constructed to get them mad and get them grumbly and get them responding and then have him use their own anger against them to get them to agree to leave Social Security alone. If it was the speech was structured this way, whoever did it is freaking brilliant. So now this is um, a little bit long, couple well, it's a couple of minutes, not too long. But I want you to listen to this whole thing because this is where he kind of touches on Social Security, uh, steps away from it, steps back, gets some reaction, pushes back on it, talks a little more. By the time this sound clip is over, he has gone from saying that there are some Republicans who want to cut Social Security to getting every Republican in Congress last night on their feet, applauding for seniors and ostensibly agreeing that Social Security and programs like it will not be touched. It is this is a master class in oratory. Listen to this. Some of my Republican friends want to take the economy hostage. I get it. Unless I agree to their economic plans. All of you at home should know what those plans are. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. You know, it means if, if Congress doesn't keep the programs the way they are, they'd go away. Other Republicans say, I'm not saying it's a majority of you. I don't even think it's even a significant. But it's being proposed by individuals. I'm not politely not naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you. Folks, the idea is that we're not going to be we're, we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond. Folks,
So, folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be spent. All right. We got unanimity. Social Security and Medicare are a lifeline for millions of seniors. Americans have to pay into them from the very first paycheck they started. So tonight, let's all agree, and apparently we are, let's stand up for seniors. Stand up and show them. We'll not cut Social Security. We will not cut Medicare. Those benefits belong to the American people. They earned it. And if anyone tries to cut Social Security, which apparently no one's going to do, and if anyone tries to cut Medicare, I'll stop them. I'll veto it. And look, I'm not going to allow them to take away, be taken away. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. But apparently it's not going to be a problem. Apparently it's not going to be a problem. Did you hear that? Going from quoting what Rick Scott said, they were all Republicans in the gallery were already mad. They were already grumbling about other things Biden had said. And the grumbling grew to a roar and he used it and he took that anger and he manipulated them. As one person said, he put them in a box. And they've now agreed Social Security cuts off the table. Uh, I was watching, I was turning channels, but I was watching a little bit of MSNBC last night. And um, Lawrence O'Donnell, who I love, and who also, you know, used to work on Capitol Hill before he became an anchor, (laughs) referred to Marjorie Taylor Greene as the stupidest person in the room. She was the one, I'm sure you've seen the pictures of her standing up and yelling. She was the one, when Biden started talking about this, she was yelling, liar, liar. Yeah. Dark Brandon at his finest. Let's take a break. We'll be back with more right after this. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. So it was pretty amazing last night. Not only... In the fact that Joe Biden, Joe Biden was as passionate as I've ever seen him. It was just an amazing thing to say. You know, they interviewed Jen Psaki after um, the speech. And she said, you know, I know that there were people in the White House who spent months crafting this speech. But she said, still, you know, you never know exactly how it's going to go. And, you know, if he's heckled, how is he going to respond? Is it going to throw him off his game? Well, I've got to tell you, nothing threw Joe Biden off of his game last night. Whenever he got heckled by the Republicans, man, oh, man, it just lit him up. It lit him up. And he was on fire. It was uh, really interesting, too, because this wasn't just a gotcha game. He really tried to make sure that everybody understood that he would like things done in a bipartisan manner. He congratulated Kevin McCarthy on becoming the speaker. 
he congratulated Mitch McConnell on being like the longest serving senator, uh, especially for the Republicans. He congratulated Chuck Schumer. He congratulated Hakeem Jeffries. He really made it clear. You know, he said that even in the places, the the dark red states that didn't vote for him, they need infrastructure. He's going to make sure they get it. It was a passionate speech. He didn't take any guff, but he made sure that everybody understood that as far as he's concerned, we're all in this together. And going forward, he would love to work with Republicans. And he thinks there is common ground. Now, having said that, you know, the Republicans for years, we've been doing this. Whoever's in power, the other side gets kind of a rebuttal. God only knows why, but they gave it to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Uh, Yeah, I know. The woman who lied to us repeatedly while she was Trump's mouthpiece. Yeah, they gave it to her. And um, I think this is really interesting. Andy Miles, who works at the station, caught this. He was watching Morning Joe this morning and MSNBC. And they put together clips of Biden talking and Sarah Sanders talking. And what they wanted to show was somebody, President Biden, who was positive, who sees great things for our country, who wants to work in a bipartisan manner to get them done and is just revved up. Contrast that with Sarah Sanders, who was supposedly, you know, nobody knows if she's still supporting Trump or if she's switched her allegiance to DeSantis. But I got to tell you, if this is the Republican Party we're going to see in the race to 2024. I don't think they have a chance. She was divisive. She was negative. So what I'm going to play for you now is something they played on Morning Joe this morning. It's intercutting. Just listen to the tonal shifts. Joe Biden talking, Sarah Sanders talking, the Democratic president talking, a Republican governor and former lying Trump mouthpiece. Listen to this. When world leaders ask me to define America, and they do, believe it or not, I say I can define it in one word, and I mean this, possibilities. We don't think anything is beyond our capacity. Today, our freedom is under attack, and the America we love is in danger. President Biden and the Democrats have failed you. We're often told that Democrats and Republicans can't work together. But over the past two years, we've proved the cynics and naysayers wrong. President Biden and I don't have a lot in common. Time and again, Democrats and Republicans came together. He's the first man to surrender his presidency to a woke mob that can't even tell you what a woman is. We have to be the nation we've always been at our best optimistic, hopeful, forward-looking. We are under attack in a left-wing culture war we didn't start and never wanted to fight. We have to see each other not as enemies, but as fellow Americans. After years of Democrat attacks on law enforcement and calls to defund the police, violent criminals roam free while law-abiding families 
live in fear. I've never been more optimistic about our future, about the future America. We just remember who we are. In the radical left's America, Washington taxes you and lights your hard-earned money on fire. Well, if that's the way 2024 is going to shape up, the Republicans are going to experience a bloodbath. A bloodbath. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, we're at war. There are culture wars. You should be afraid. You're going to be taxed to death if you're not beaten to death. Compare that with Joe Biden. We can do anything. We can do anything we put our minds to. I wonder what Sarah's thinking today. She's thinking, gosh, you know, I really knocked it out of the park last night. Man, all that anger and all that fear mongering. That was I hit the sweet spot. Do you think that's what she's thinking today? I mean, even Kevin McCarthy, as the speech was going on, whenever there were Republican rumbles or heckles, you could see Kevin McCarthy. Sometimes he'd be mouthing shh, and sometimes he would just shake his head and go, no, 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 no. He didn't want the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world misbehaving like that. And it fed right in. Maybe maybe in the beginning he wasn't opposed to it, but when he saw the effect it was having on Joe Biden, that it was lighting a fire under him. Anyway, do not listen to the Republican talking points, because today the Republicans are trying to convince the public that Joe Biden saying that they wanted to cut or sunset Social Security, that those were lies. Those were lies. Those were always lies, 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 lies. But you heard Rick Scott being held to account by, of all organizations, Fox. Rick Scott must have thought he had a day pass and he was just going to be able to say whatever he wanted to say. But the um, Sunday morning news anchor was like, hey, no. And he goes, well, it's a Democratic talk. No, it's not a Democratic talking point. It's in your plan. Rick Scott's plan. And I don't know. Rick Scott was also the guy who was, uh, I haven't heard much about this lately. Remember, Republicans were going to investigate how he spent some of the money he had the power over to allocate in the midterm elections. There were some questionable expenditures that a few people, Republicans, flagged. And uh, they were going to be very quietly looked into. (laughs) You know, people say, that the uh, Trump support is cracking and, you know, Republican moderates are going to step back up. I don't see it. I don't see it right now. Might happen down the road. But I don't see it happening in the next two years. Not when you have the Lauren Boberts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gates and the Gosars and et cetera and so forth who don't seem to understand, oh, let's not forget George Santos. George Santos, who actually got dissed by Mitt Romney last night. He um, apparently knew where the C-SPAN cameras were, and he walked over and stood in the aisle right on camera, was right where Mitt Romney was sitting. And apparently Mitt Romney looked at him and said, you don't belong here. 
today, uh, George Santos or Anthony DeVolder, whoever that, or Katara, whoever he is, gave an interview and said, oh, people have been trying to tell me I don't belong here my whole life. You know, I didn't listen then and I'm not going to listen now. Okay, George, Anthony, Katara. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, the clown, the clownishness is going to get worse before it gets better. You know, this is you may remember me saying this all throughout the Trump presidency. It's going to get worse before it gets better. It did get a little better. We got Joe Biden in the uh, Republican chaos in Congress is going to get worse before it gets better. A little later, I'm going to be talking to Chris Bury, the DePaul journalist in residence, and we're going to talk about the State of the Union speech, but we're also going to talk about a hearing that uh, took place today. The uh, House Oversight and Accountability Committee. Yeah, the, the nutty Republicans called a hearing. We'll talk about that. I mean, it was literally, oh, God. Well, first of all, let me tell you, Jamie Raskin and AOC were on fire. But it was a hearing to try to dredge up some kind of punishment for social media companies for the fact that they didn't buy into the whole Hunter Biden laptop thing like they should have. Unbelievable. Anyway, uh, let's keep talking about the State of the Union a little bit longer. I'm going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by Paul Glastris, was the editor-in-chief of Washington Monthly and a little earlier in his career was a Clinton speechwriter. We'll talk about his take on the State of the Union address when we come right back after this. Take Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am very happy to welcome to our program Paul Glastris, uh, editor-in-chief of the Washington Monthly. Paul, thanks for being here. Joan, it's a pleasure. The pleasure, Paul, is all mine. I've heard a rumor that once upon a time you were a political speechwriter. Is this true? I was indeed. I uh, worked for President Bill Clinton in, uh, for two and a half years and uh, worked on a couple of the states of the union. I was also a journalist in Chicago, I'm proud to say. I lived there 13 years. Wow. <laughs> when was that? When were you in Chicago? Well, I was in and out of it through the 80s and 90s, but uh, I was with U.S. News and World Report uh, covering the Midwest from the Tribune Tower back in the 90s, late 80s. Wow. Well, we miss you. We miss you here. (laughs) Um, I I heard an interview late in the game uh, after the speech last night where uh, they went to Jen Psaki, former White House uh, spokesperson, and she said something that surprised me. She said, I can tell you that there were people in the White House that that worked on this speech for months. Is that a speech like this? I mean, I know it's a big one. I know it's important, but really... A speech like this would get worked on for months? Oh, most definitely. Uh, President Clinton would sit down with his speechwriting team, oh, I'd say in November. Uh, we'd bring a tape recorder. He'd uh, give us his thoughts on broad themes of the speech, some particular things he wanted to talk about. 
then what typically happens is the policy uh, people in the White House uh, fan out and talk to the cabinet departments. They talk to congressional leaders. They talk to interest groups. They talk to think tanks um, and just, you know, invite proposals. Everybody wants their budget increase. Everybody wants their policy in the speech. That all gets hammered out. Then uh, the, we sit down with the policy people, write up a draft of the speech, probably around December, and then uh, sit it down again with the president. He'll kind of go over it, and then draft after draft after draft uh, all through January. Wow. How many people do the actual writing? Well, you know, I don't know how they do it in the Biden administration. In the Clinton administration, there were uh, between six and eight speechwriters, and, and people would be given a chunk uh, to do. I would perhaps do the education part. Somebody else would do the budget part. And then the chief speechwriter would weave them all together. And then once you have something put together, uh, does the president sit down again and go, I like this, I don't like this, make this a little stronger? Does that kind of feedback? Oh, most definitely. What uh, President Clinton would do is the three days prior to the speech, he'd stand in front of a podium in the uh, movie theater on the east wing of the White House. And there was about space for about 30 people in there. So the senior advisors would be in there. All the speechwriters would be in there. We'd have uh, our computers there. And he would read the speech sentence by sentence and stop and say, you know, that doesn't sound right. Let's do it this way. And we rewrite the sentence the way he wanted. And he'd do that for two, three hours a day for three straight days. By the time it was over, he'd kind of rewritten the speech, or at least <laughs> major parts of it. And I, I, my understanding is Biden is very similar. He really uh, wants to make it his own. Well, I, I can't remember the title. And unfortunately, my bookcase is across the other end of the room. Um, I read a book that was written by one of President Obama's speechwriters. And I don't know that he worked on a State of the Union, but he worked on speeches in general. And he he described a process much like you just uh, told us about. You know, you know, he would get something together. He would think it was great. And President Obama would sit across from him and go like, yeah, that paragraph. No, no, that's not me. Uh, and uh, and that, you know, he really no matter how well crafted a speech was by a speechwriter, Obama put his stamp on it. And I have to believe that that's what every president does. Everybody knows, you know, back in the days when I was a news anchor, yeah, we had a lot of writers who wrote copy, but any news anchor worth their salt reads and adjusts that copy, whether it's just you question a fact or even just things like your cadence or how much wind you have before you need to get to the end of the sentence. Um, you know, sentences that maybe just don't trip off of your tongue the way they read. Um, everybody puts their own stamp on things, don't you think, if they really want it to be a reflection of themselves? Absolutely. And it's not just that, 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 the, that the person giving the speech, the president in this case, wants to make it his own. It, 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 there's a real back and forth between the speechwriters and the president trying to craft the best way to say something. And, and uh, in the end, when the president's done with it, at least in my experience, it is a way better speech than the one we gave him. Mm-hmm. And I, I would imagine you also talk about tone. I don't know 
uh, if we connected with you soon enough, but I played on Morning Joe on MSNBC. They interspersed phrases from Biden and phrases from uh, Sarah Sanders, the Republican rebuttal speech. And man, she was like doom and gloom and fear and violence. And you could even though they weren't even using complete sentences from President Biden, you know, you could feel the positivity and there's nothing we can't do. You know, we're Americans. And, you know, like we put our mind to something, we get it done. The, The one being so positive and upbeat and the other being so dour and dark, the contrast was amazing. Did you have a chance to listen to Sarah Sanders? I sure did. It sounded to she sounded to me like a AM radio right wing talk show host. Right? She did not sound like a president. She sounded like she was talking to her base and, you know, with exaggeration and dire warnings of doom. Couldn't have been less I mean she had some nice moments when she talked about, you know, beating cancer and so forth. But the rest of it was just not presidential at all. And, you know, it's often the case that the rebuttal speech is more red meat. But, boy, that was about as red as I've seen. That's an interesting point you make. She was. She was talking to the Republican base. And by contrast, I got the impression President Biden was trying to talk to everybody. I mean, at one point in his speech, he even said, like, you know, those of you that live in the deep red states, those of you who didn't vote for me, if you need your roads fixed, I'm going to do it for you, too, because I'm the president for everybody. Um, Do you think that that was why would she or her handlers, I don't know, her advisors, why would she want to make a speech with such a narrow focus, Paul? What's the upside of that? Well, that's what the Trump base wants to hear. And when I say the Trump base, I don't mean all Republicans. I mean the really hardcore Trump above all folks. And remember, she was Donald Trump's press person and spewed every lie and disinformation that she was handed and created her own. So this is how she naturally, you know, views the world. And, uh, um, you know, I think they chose her because she's young. She's a woman. Boy, she wasn't blunt. She wasn't uh, hiding the fact that I'm 40 and the president's 80, trying to nail, you know, that. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But, you know, there's those rebuttal speeches that the, the person giving them always looks diminished compared to the president, regardless of the party, right? The president is standing in the well of the house, surrounded by uh, people applauding him. The rebuttal is in some room. Remember, it's just, uh, uh, it's, you know, remember Marco Rubio grabbing the, the bottle of water? It's a hard thing to pull off. Um, but I, 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 I've not seen one quite that raw and angry and weird uh, yeah. in a long time, if ever. Didn't the Republicans learn anything in the midterms that by being really far right, they can't garner enough support to win elections that they have to, if not, if not go after Democratic voters, at least try to grab some independence in the middle of the field. That did not seem like a speech that was designed to lure anybody in. Well, look at the speech that the president gave, and you can tell they didn't learn anything because 
you know, there was uh, Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, shushing his fellow, you know, members of his caucus for for uh, heckling the president. And he knows uh, that that kind of behavior is going to lose them elections, but they do it anyway, at least a portion of them do. Yeah, I don't recall ever seeing a speaker. I mean, you know, most of my it seems like most of my adult life I was watching Nancy Pelosi. But I mean, I was watching him and he'd be shaking his head. No, you could see him mouth. No, no, no. You could see him shushing. Um, I don't recall. And supposedly before the speech, he sent out a note saying, like, now, remember, there's going to be a lot of hot mics. Don't say anything that, you know, you don't want picked up by journalists. And remember, if you're on your phone, people are going to see on camera what you're doing on your phone. I mean, it was somebody compared it to, you know, giving instruction to kindergartners or first graders. I don't remember a speaker doing that or having to do that. Maybe I wasn't paying attention, Paul. Is that sort of a normal thing? It's not normal at all. But, you know, the situation's not normal at all. Look, you know, Kevin McCarthy is like the substitute teacher, right? Uh, he can't <laughs> control his class. Uh, everybody knows he's not going to be there very long. He's got no clout. Uh, it's just a, a, a pandemonium. Paul, I'm talking to Paul Glasserus, who's the editor-in-chief of Washington Monthly and a former uh, Clinton speechwriter. We are going to take a break and we're going to talk more about President Biden's State of the Union address last night right after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Paul Glasser joins me. He's editor-in-chief of Washington Monthly. Uh, you can take a look at some of their articles. Go to WashingtonMonthly.com. Uh, Paul also was a Clinton speechwriter. I have to ask you, first of all, uh, one thing I observed was that Rather than getting derailed by the Republican grumbling and heckling, Joe Biden seemed to be set on fire, seemed to be lit from within by it. Also, people are talking about how he brilliantly boxed the Republicans in. He got them mad and they claimed they never said anything about cutting Social Security. And in the space of two or three minutes, he gets them all to agree that that's off the table, those, those programs won't be touched, and he gets them to stand up and cheer. I, as a speechwriter, the, are there tactics like, oh, we'll say this, that'll get them mad, and then later we'll say this and they'll be even madder, and then we'll say this and they'll lose their minds, and then that's when we go in for the kill. <laughs> Was that scripted, Paul? You know, everyone is speculating about about that. I, I, I worked on two states of the union, and I don't remember ever uh, uh, anyone suggesting this line will get the Republicans to do X. Um, I think it's 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 way too unpredictable. And you know, uh, <laughs> it seems like a dangerous game. Yeah, no, that was just brilliant ad lib. And it's possible that somebody, you know, some of the senior people said, 
you know, these are the possible ways they're going to react and fed him some, it gave him some thoughts about how he would do it. But that looked to me, because it, it took him up, it, it, he didn't do it immediately. He kind of played with it and thought his way through it, and then he just nailed it. Um, it was one of the most brilliant pieces of political rhetoric, maybe, you know, in the history of the State of the Union. I've never seen anything like it. And um, he he did exactly what you said. He listened to what they were doing and tactically, you know, jujitsu them to support a position that, of course, he wanted. You know, in the Clinton years in 1998, you'll remember the Republicans had taken, you know, uh, uh, he was President Clinton was in the middle of the worst point in his presidency when when. You know the Monica Lewinsky thing uh, happened, and they were uh, they were on uh, they, they 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 were on their heels. And he, he this was not uh, this was not um, uh, improv. It was written into the speech. He said, "We have surpluses for the first time in years. Um, let's make a pact. Save Social Security first. And with those four words, he not only took. Uh, charge of an issue that the Republicans thought they were going to push, which was, you know, so you know, entitlement reform, so uh, quote unquote. But he boxed the Republicans in with a proposal to not cut taxes, but put the excess into Social Security, and that saved, you know, the the, the Treasury for three years from being uh, drained. Of course, when George W. Bush came, the draining happened, but. Um, you know, Joe Biden did it extemporaneously. Brilliant. It seemed to me like one of the most amazing speeches I think that Joe Biden has ever given. What? How would you? How would you rank it? What? You know, you're the expert. Give me your analysis of the speech. I thought it was extremely well crafted, and it was not a speech written for the ages. Right. It's not it's not something that, uh, you know, necessarily will be carved in marble somewhere, not like a (laughs) Kennedy or FDR Reagan. But it was more Clinton-esque in that it was perfectly crafted to the moment and for the policy and political uh, aims of the speech. Um, You know, the refrain, let's finish the job. He must have said it a dozen times. I looked at the front pages of a bunch of newspapers, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Atlantic Journal-Constitution, also the Chicago Tribune. They all had the same front page headline, Biden to GOP, let's finish the job. Uh-huh. And think about what that those words mean. It suggests we've already started the job. That was the number one thing he needed to get across in this speech and that I was predicting that he would do, which is to explain to the American people what he's already done, right? He signed some major, major legislation in its first two years, and 99 out of 100 people couldn't tell you what was in those bills, um, because the way it was discussed on in Washington and in the press was how much money was being spent, not what the bills actually did. And they were big, complicated bills with all kinds of uh, implications. So the first thing he did was show what he'd already done. But then let's finish the job 
spins it forward and say the thing that I started and, oh, by the way, Republicans work with me on, let's continue to do more of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think I, I, that's very interesting. That sounds to me like a slogan for 2024, Paul. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Now that now that you mention it, because the be- people were saying, you know, going into this, this is the launch of his re-election campaign, and that's fair enough. But you know, uh, Bill Clinton wasn't running for re-election in 1999 when I was working on his State of the Union, but it had all the same characteristics of 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 the speech Joe Biden gave. Um, look, Joe Biden was where every president wants to be when they give the State of the Union. Um, he had an economy that was growing. He had jobs at a, at a historic low, inflation going down, uh, America's adversaries, China and Russia, weaker, America and its allies stronger, uh, you know, and big accomplishments that he can not only pocket, but he's going to spend the next two years implementing. That is a, that is real strength, and and that strength was seen in, in, in the speech itself. Yeah. Paul, one of the experts, one of the political observers who I talk to frequently on this show, has said over and over again that the one thing that Democrats tend to miss is that what really appeals to people is not so much an intellectual argument, but an emotional argument. Something that stirs their feelings uh, is much more motivating than some sort of intellectual policy regurgitation. I saw one real quick poll that said something like, as of this morning, I can't remember whether it was specific about Joe Biden or just feeling that the country's going in the right direction. There was like a 17 to 19 percent jump in the people who said, yeah, that Biden's great and the country's doing well overnight. That seems to, since President Biden didn't, like, drop any bombshells policy-wise, all he did was reiterate what he's already done, but he did it in a deeply emotionally connecting way. It seems to be exactly like what my expert was talking about. Joe Biden touched people emotionally with that speech. Would you agree with that? And also, do you agree with the whole idea that the best way to sway people is by connecting emotionally rather than intellectually. Well, I'm going to agree and disagree. Uh, go back <laughs> to Aristotle, right? Aristotle didn't say manipulate people's emotions, and he didn't say make logical arguments. He said do both. And that is what Joe Biden did. That's what a great speech giver does. There, were lot, there was tons of policy talk in this, in this speech, Lots of specifics about what he's already accomplished. Lots of proposals uh, uh, for what he would like to do um, to quadruple the tax on stock buybacks that companies use to, in, you know, increase their CEO pay and not put money into productive endeavors that uh, that grow the economy and 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 lift people's wages. Um, he talked about these junk fees that you pay to airlines just so mm-hmm. you, know, you can sit with your kids, right? Um, these are things that are real policies, but there are also real policies that tap into 
the emotions people have about the way they have to live in this world where you've got giant companies with monopoly power who can push you around. And, and I loved and when he so, said the about we talking about hotels and he's talking about and, and resort fees. And he said, and you're not even staying at a resort. <laughs> exactly. I mean, he used humor. He 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 tapped into people's lived experience. And that's how you manipulate people's emotions. And manipulate isn't even the right word. It's, it's you tap their emotions. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, give me a break, he said at the end of that. Um, th- that's how average people talk. And um, he was very good about using plain language. And it wasn't really, he wasn't, there were moments of, of, of temper that you saw in him. But it was very controlled. And it was very much painting a picture of how people lived. And, you know, he did that in time and again when he talked about the parents of uh, Tyree Nichols and the mother. And he asked the mother, how do you go on? Your son has just been beaten to death. And she says, you know, uh, I hope something good comes from this. And he used that line and he turned it to the members of the uh, Congress and he said, Make sure we do something good with this. And that was very, very affecting. Who was going to question that that was uh, both policy and emotional? When you're a speechwriter, do you also give a candidate advice? Um, I'm thinking back, you know, after I, I left television news for a while, I, I did media training. And we all have the phrases that we lean in, the noises we make when we're trying to fill space to get ready to say something, the verbal ticks. I noticed that some of the things that uh, were Joe Biden's crutches were not present last night. Is there somebody whose job it is to say, you know, President Biden, you kind of say that a lot. Maybe let's not say that tonight. Well, you know, Joan, I remember your, your years on TV, and you're a real pro. Joe Biden has never quite, you know, become that kind of speaker. Um, you know, Barack Obama was, uh, uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, you know, Biden Biden is not as fluid as that. But you're right; he was he he was he was closer to being fluid last night than we've seen him in a long time. And the answer is yes. Um, Bill Clinton, as good as he was, had a speech speech coach who would come in and and help him. And I'm sure that's the case with with Biden. If not a professional, then certainly somebody he trusts who can help him with that. Wow. Paul, it is so much fun to talk with you. I would love it if you would uh, come back sometime. We can talk about what... um, Reporting Washington Monthly is doing, actually, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, we are going to be talking to Bill Scher later. Uh, he's a reporter at Washington Monthly. But I'm uh, issuing the invitation to you, Paul, right now that I would love for you to come back and be on air and talk about uh, all this stuff going forward. As we get closer to 2024, there's going to be a lot of stuff to talk about. Anytime, Joan. It's a pleasure to talk to you and to talk to my uh, to the people of Chicago. Love the city. Uh, I have family there and miss it terribly. Well, um, I hope all of Paul's family is listening. He did, he was great. We got to get him back here on the radio. Paul Glasteris is the editor in chief of Washington Monthly. Look it up, WashingtonMonthly.com. We're going to take a break and we are going to talk to the Better Government Association right after this. 
There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. Hey, where's Hal Sparks? I'm not sure where he is now, but I know where you can find him Saturdays at 11. It'll be right here on WCPT 820 for the Hal Sparks Radio Program, Mega Worldwide. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. A WCPT 820. We talk with the Better Government Association a lot. They do amazing work. They're particularly good at analysis and sifting through vast amounts of data to tell us how our government is working and also to point out areas where it might not be working. Uh, Recently, the Better Government Association took a look at the mechanism Illinois has in place to try to keep corruption out of politics, particularly down in Springfield. It is... um, It's a lot, and only an organization like the Better Government Association, I think, is really equipped to do that kind of deep dive. One of the analysts at the BGA, uh, Sophia Van Pelt, who's a financial policy analyst, um, put out, was part of um, that that reporting, and uh, put out an article kind of summarizing what the Better Government Association found about how well... We are equipped to try to keep corruption out of politics. Sophia joins us now to, to, to talk about her reporting. Sophia, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, that was a, a very, very sort of brief description of what this was about. Give us, frankly, give my listeners a better description than I just gave about this work. Well, thank you so much for, for having me on and letting me talk about this. So I would say today our whole discussion is centered on the legislature. And there are two components that have oversight over the legislature. That is the Legislative Ethics Commission and the Legislative Inspector General. And both bodies do not do as good of a job as they could at investigating and and being oversight bodies because of a few structural elements of the way that they're they're currently structured. I want to get into those uh, structural problems, but do those two entities work together or separately? They have a, a, a rather unhealthy dynamic. Because the commission oversees the inspector general entirely. And this even goes down to most people, when they think of the inspector general, I'm sure they're imagining a body that, as the name suggests, has the ability to investigate, investigate corruption and, yeah. and to support uh, reports on what they find. The issue here is the inspector general has to have permission to issue subpoenas and compel compel testimony um, and also needs permission to release reports. And for that reason, they're not as strong as they otherwise could be. 
So they're not independent. They rely on this Legislative Ethics Commission for permissions. Exactly. And that wouldn't be terrible. It would be strange. But what really makes this so much worse is the fact that the commission is a panel of eight members who are all appointed by the leaders in the legislature. And this really leads to a situation where, where um, as I say in the article, article and as, as past Inspector General has said, the, the fox was guarding the hen house. Basically. I was just going to say this. That sounds a, a little bit like, you know, the people who are potentially doing wrong and potentially going to be investigated have some say over whether or not that's going to happen. Or if it is, if it does happen, whether or not anybody's ever going to see those reports. Exactly. Exactly. It is a very strange system indeed, and it's unique, to say the least. In uh, when, when we looked at other states, not all states have what we have, where we have a legislative commission, which is specifically looking at the legislature. Um, most states have some sort of ethics commission that oversees one or or multiple entities. And for one thing, most states have an odd number of members because then you don't have, you don't have dead black votes. Most states also have at least one member appointed by a non-legislative body. It could be the courts. It could be someone from the executive branch. Either way, you have someone who's not involved in the legislature helping to to do oversight because otherwise... It's like when we were, you know, students in class, and if you ever had a teacher who let everyone grade their own assignments, mm. and on those assignments, all of a sudden, the whole class did a lot better than than <laughs> they did on the on the exams or tests the teacher graded. Sophia, how did we get this system? So there has been some work to um, to overhaul and bring and bring more ethical oversight in. To the legislature, Illinois legislature, um, the inspector general position is a relatively new one. And I think the very first one we had retired relatively recently in 2014. So this is this is a development that that is relatively new. And there has been recent progress before the inspector general before a few years ago, the inspector general also needed approval before initiating an investigation. But now if they receive a complaint, they can choose to start an investigation on their own. Uh, this was, a, this is a, a, as I said, a relatively new development. So there, there has been progress, albeit it's been rather slow. It almost sounds like a system that was set up to give lip service to the idea of ethics and going after corruption. Look at this. We did this. We've got this legislative body. We've got an inspector general. We've got an ethics commission. Look at us. We are great. When actually, it sounds to me like the way it was set up on purpose to maybe advertise something it wasn't really delivering on. Is that unfair? Even in, uh, BGA has even said in the past that that the the panel members, the commissioners, are essentially figureheads for 
the, the legislative leaders. And as I said, because it's an even number, you, you can have situations where, where four, four members of one party vote against four members of the other party. And you said that it just leads to deadlock. It leads to a whole lot of nothing and actually happening. And um, I want to um, reiterate something that you just said. It's not like every state works this way. I know that in your analysis, you looked at a lot of different commissions and, um, you know, what you said, some have an odd number preventing deadlock votes. Some have at least one member appointed by somebody who's not in office. And some have even a majority of members appointed by non-legislative, a non-legislative body. So are we unique in the way we do things here, Sophia? We certainly are. We are in... And not in a good way. No, no, not in a good way. When you look at just only four states have a commission that exclusively looks at the legislature that, that we were, that Eugenia was able to find, all three of the other states have an odd number of members. All three have at least one member not appointed by the legislature. And as you said, not only that, all three commissions have a majority of members not appointed by the legislature. So Alaska is a commission of nine and five, at least of the members, are appointed by someone who is not a legislature in the legislature. And many even have restrictions to some extent on allowing current or former lawmakers sit on the commission. I'm speaking with uh, Sophia Van Pelt, who's a financial policy analyst at the Better Government Association. And uh, she did a deep dive into the structure that Illinois has in place (laughs) to try to rein in things like bribery or corruption in uh, in our elected officials, it is perhaps um, the findings of the BGA are that we perhaps don't have the best system we could possibly have. I'm going to take a break, and Sophia and I are going to talk about solutions and where we go from here right after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT. 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. My guest is Sophia Van Pelt, who's a financial policy analyst at the Better Government Association. Her article is titled, Illinois Legislative Oversight is weak compared to other states. Also, as we just discussed, it is a little bit set up like the fox watching the hen house here in the state of Illinois. And this isn't the way it's done in other states across the nation. And we wonder why we send so many of our elected officials to jail. Uh, Sophia, what else can you tell us about some of what you gleaned by doing this research? One thing I think is really important for people to take away is the substantive impact the structure has had. And so since 2017, 
the, the legislative inspector general has requested that seven reports be published, but only five of those reports ended up actually being published because the commission is able to reject reports that they don't want to, to see the light of day. And so there are two reports that they were able to keep in the dark, even though the inspector general asked them to be made public. Is there any fallout? It would seem like if I were on this commission and the inspector general said, yeah, I got to publish this report. And I was like, oh, no, that makes me and my friends look bad. Um, You can't do that. It would seem that there would be, Sophia, some blowback, some controversy. I I take it in Illinois. We just sort of take those things in stride. I think that is I think that's an interesting point. I think it is harder to say in general. um, One of the one of the issues with the reports not being public is that it does not allow people to have a discussion around around what should the ramifications be and and so it's it ends up i think allowing the silence that you're talking about before we go any further i don't uh, i want to do this now so i don't forget um where can people read this article is it on the bga website is there a link Yes, yes. If you go to BetterGov, you will see it's one of the one of the items right underneath our uh, mayoral candidates questionnaire. If you want to see how the different mayors uh, mayoral candidates answer questions about FOIA, have any um, members of the commission, or heck, pretty much anybody in Springfield, has anybody reached out to you and said, "Oh my God, Sophia." This report, we've got to do something about this. We have to make changes. Have you heard from anybody or has anybody reached out? I've not heard anyone who has been championing. There ha- there have been some efforts in, in, in talks about strengthening um, ethics reform in general. Um, so, and I don't want to say there hasn't been, but nobody has reached out to me particularly, especially on this topic. If and or perhaps we should say when they do, what would you say? What are the parts of the structure? What are the laws that need to be changed? You have a wide variety of things we can look at, and that can involve having a a citizen added to the commission, and then there would be nine people and someone who could speak for the public and break ties. And you can go as far as abolishing the commission entirely. Mm-hmm. Also, the inspector general not being able to issue subpoenas is so incredibly bizarre that I, I think it makes sense to give them the ability to, to do that on their own. Who names the members of the commission? Is it the Speaker of the House? Is it the governor? Who does that? It, the all... The, each leader of the House and Senate, both the majority and minority leaders, um, choose two people. And so that leads to us having eight people sitting on the commission. And even if those eight members voted on picking a ninth public member like of the citizen who could not have ever been in the legislature, I think that would begin at least some sort of progress forward. So this isn't a commission that the governor has any power over? No. No, it is not. 
you mentioned that there seems to be or there well let's call them rumblings <laughs> that there have been rumblings in Springfield that somehow they need a better watchdog or more independent watchdog they need to be better at this whole idea of um ethics and staying away from corruption are they is it rumblings is is that as a fair way to describe it sophia or is it is it more than that is something do you think in the next year going to happen i truthfully i very much do hope so and uh, uh pritzker has said that he has has an open to and wants to see further reform um as well and but i still I'm hoping to see a more substantial push towards giving the inspector general themselves more power. And would that happen because of legislation that was introduced? Could these eight people just meet and reform the rules under which their commission works? What would be the process? The commission can change their own rules and and from there reform to some extent what the inspector general is able to do um but really for any long standing um transformation of any of this you really would need the laws to be changed because when anything the commission changes they can also change back ah yes it's um it's kind of got to come from public pressure, doesn't it? Because, I mean, let's face it. I mean, there's a lot of self-interest here. I mean, if I were a legislator in Springfield, you know, and there was a report that was going to be coming out that would embarrass one of my colleagues, I can see where it would be human nature to say, oh, you know, uh, let's drag our feet on this one. I mean, it, it almost is It's going to take public pressure to overcome the self-interest of legislators in trying to continue to have this power to protect their fellow members. Don't you think, Sophia? I completely agree. It certainly will take public pressure, and um, it's within all of ourselves. It's just a human thing to, you know, be shy of oversight, and it's something that, that it really will come from the people to say, no, we, we need and deserve this. This is how a democracy functions is that the people being able to understand and interact with their representatives on this level. So my audience is a fairly activist group compared with most. So where do we go from here? Do we call our state senators and state representatives is there a particular bill that we can say, by the way, I want you to vote for this or against this? How do how do the people who are listening to us now, how do they do something about this, Sophia? I certainly would say contacting your representatives is a fantastic first start. And in the moment, there is legislation in Springfield. Um, BGA has a bill tracker, and we will put it on our website, and this will allow people to to keep up with it and and follow it as it goes to committee. And we will be updating people if we see something that it, we think is worth supporting. Um, we will be more than happy to be involved in in helping the citizens testify for for 
their testify their support of such a bill. Um, but until then, it really will need will, we will need someone to introduce a bill to allow the inspector general to issue subpoenas or to change the commission. If you want to read this article, it is on the homepage, bettergov.org. Uh, it is front and center with a nice picture of you, Sophia. Uh, Thank you. As a matter of fact, she's got two articles on the homepage. Illinois legislative oversight is weak compared to other states and how Illinois courts are hidden from FOIA requests. Um, great work. Um, if we wanted to find out... Uh, if we wanted to look up this bill tracker, how do we find that, Sophia? That is also on the BetterGov site, bettergov.org, and you will see at the top, get involved, and you can find your legislator, and you can also hit our bill tracker. Both ah, there it is. You're right. Drop-down menu, just where you said it would be. Um, thank you. This is going to be really useful for me, too, as uh, I talk to a lot of state reps and a lot of state senators. And Julia and I run around sometimes like, OK, what where are they sponsoring? What what's coming up? Thank you for this. And thank you for the work that you are doing on this issue. You know, we it would be nice, wouldn't it, if if we wouldn't uh, continue to be the butt of so many late night comedians jokes about how many of our elected officials end up in jail and. Uh, Sophia Van Pelt has got a roadmap here for us, folks. Sophia, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We are going to take a break. We are going to go back to Washington right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Washington Monthly Day here at WCPT. We are now going to be speaking with a reporter from Washington Monthly, Bill Scher, who, uh, if you go to the homepage, WashingtonMonthly.com, you can see a number of articles he's written. And, of course, he was paying attention to President Biden's speech last night. Bill, welcome. Thank you for being here. Great to be with you. Great to have you. Um, What did you think of Biden's speech? What was the good, the bad, the ugly? Uh, I thought it was a fascinating night. If you love political theater, this is one of the greatest State of the Union ever ever to be held. Uh, And I think Biden did himself a world of good. Uh, He uh, locked in the premise that Republicans aren't going to push for any kind of cuts in Social Security and Medicare. Uh, In doing so, he went off script. He was very agile in the face of a lot of heckling. And for any Democrats who are nervous, that Biden can't go the distance a second time because he, he lacks uh, lacks the stamina because of his age. I think that puts a lot of those concerns uh, at, at ease because here's a guy who wasn't just reading off of a prompter; he was handling a very difficult and intense situation with a lot of a lot of confidence and uh, and calm. So uh, I think it was a very good night for Biden. 
I think so, too. And I also came away with that same impression, uh, you know, because when he was running for president before, you know, there was the Biden of the leather jacket and the aviator glasses and riding his bike. And, uh, you know, we got this uh, impression of of energy. But frankly, you know, in a lot of the speeches he's made recently, that energy hasn't always been present. But not only would I say he was full of energy last night, I would say he was on fire last night. And he, Bill, did you notice how, you know, he got heckled? Some of it, I think most of it was it picked up off mic. There were rumblings. There was yelling. And did you get the same impression? I got the impression he was feeding off of it, that it was like firing him up. Yeah, he he likes having the far right as a foil. You know, he's got a he's got a difficult line to walk because he wants to present himself as the bipartisan who makes things work in Washington, who ends the dysfunction. But at the same time, he knows that Demo- whatever problems Democrats have, they look very small in comparison to a, a Republican clown car. So he wants to play up that part of the Republican Party while also giving himself the opportunity to strike that deal when he has to. I think you walked that line very well last night. Yes, you make an interesting point. You know, he he did walk that line because even though he was responding to his critics and uh, in a very fiery way, he was also making it clear with almost everything he said that he really wants a bipartisan effort on most, if not all, of the things that he is going to try to do. Um, that is a, a tricky line to walk. I think he did a great job. I mean, look, Republicans control the House, not by a lot, but they control it. I mean, anything that's going to pass in the next two years is going to have to have some Republican support, as was the case with most things that passed the last two years, because you still got to get over the filibuster in the Senate. Uh, mm-hmm. So Biden has found a way to find those deals without legitimizing the ultra-MAGA wing of the party. In fact, I would say the Republican Party is fairly divided right now, and that's one of the reasons why Kevin McCarthy is not coming into this gentleman negotiation with a very strong hand, because he doesn't have a unified party behind him making specific demands, and that that helps Biden's uh, leverage in the negotiation. In the headline for your main article on the Washington Monthly website, um, the subtitle is that Biden smartly stressed antitrust and consumer rights. Talk about what he did and why you think it was smart. Well, you know, the, the you know, antitrust policies you know have a lot of political po- potential, but they can be sometimes hard to communicate. You, you don't want to get involved in a lot of legalese. We're talking mm-hmm. about you know, mergers and acquisitions and uh, stuff like that. But he managed to pick examples that were very easy to comprehend. Why should you pay 200 bucks to change cell phone providers? Why should there be a charge of 50 bucks to sit with your family on an airplane? Uh, it, 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 it's something that I think people can get their heads around very easily. And it's really hard to come up with, with a counter argument to it. So it, it sounds very common sense. And something that could potentially have real-world impact in people's lives. Uh, and I think the Democrats can get behind it. And I, I can't know how the Republicans will react, but they've had some interest in going after big tech. So mm-hmm. maybe if, if it's going to you know, 
do a little damage to them, they might actually get on board with it. I was listening to a lot of the cable commentators after the speech, and um, a few of them were saying that they thought not only was Biden's speech great and uh, the fact that he was able to pivot and come back even stronger, but a few of them said they thought that Biden's performance and, you know, I guess the way maybe he got Republicans to agree to leave their hands off Social Security, that just the overall speech left Kevin McCarthy looking weaker than he was before. I'm not sure that I buy that. What What are your thoughts? Well, I think Kevin McCarthy, I'll say, I'll say something positive about Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> Go, I yeah. Think I think it's a very difficult situation. He, he got the gavel by having to make promises to the far right edge of his caucus. And that appeared to be pushing for a balanced budget in 10 years, which kind of sounds easy, but it's really mathematically impossible. It would involve very, very dramatic and painful cuts that really nobody wants to do. And on top of that, the Republican Party is not in agreement on cutting Social Security and Medicare, where you could potentially save a lot of money, although it would be painful. Uh, they're not in agreement about cutting defense spending, which used to be a unified position amongst Republicans that they would protect the Pentagon. Now they're not unified on that. Uh, and so if you're not unified on those two big things, well, there's not a lot left to cut if you want to do something really, really big. And so McCarthy is having to go into this negotiation without any specifics. There's no real red line that he's drawing, except we should cut something. There should be some net cut, but where, he can't even say. And the worry going into this was that if McCarthy pulled his punches, the far right would come in and try to fire him and replace him with someone who was even crazier. McCarthy has been able to move away from the ra- these radical positions without a lot of blowback. From the far right. They're not talking about firing him right now. They're not complaining about his strategy so far. So I think that's a certain amount of uh, a finesse that McCarthy's pulling off. But having said that, he, it does leave him with a kind of a weak hand in dealing with Biden because he's not really asking for anything in particular. Like, what I think McCarthy is saying to Biden privately is, get me out of this mess. Can we do something that's really light, some sort of mild cut? It's not too painful for you. It's not too big for us. And let's get out of this mess before we have to do a whole debt limit drama. If, if they thought going at risking default was good for them, they'd be sounding a lot crazier now than they sound. But McCarthy is trying to sound very, very calm and reassuring so that he realizes there's not a lot of political uh, uh, benefit to playing that kind of chicken. He wants to get out of this mess with as little damage as possible. I agree that McCarthy has left himself vulnerable by agreeing to what is it? I believe one person can uh, can say, ah, oh, you know what? I think I've I think I've had my fill, Mr. Speaker. Um, let's you know, let's uh, have a vote. But I'm not sure that the that somebody crazier would be elected because let's be generous. The uh, the the real right wingers, the far right wingers. At best, I think they number maybe 20 members of Congress. And do you really think that the more reasonable members of Congress, you know, the the Don Bacons of the world are going to go along with Matt Gates's choice to be the next speaker? Well, this is the whole fear going in. W- would the tail wag the dog? 
Mm-hmm. Would there be, you know, five to ten super crazy, you know, Matt Gates types who would say you can't do anything without us, and so it's our way or the highway? Uh, and you know, the notion that the Don Bacon's would break off and elect a speaker with, with Democrats—they didn't pursue it very seriously. The Matt Gates types seem to win the day. <laughs> they seem to get their their pledges from McCarthy, but now. There's not a lot of follow-through on McCarthy's part, and they're not complaining. Uh, so, uh, I mean, the worry would be that they get mad at McCarthy, they call that vote, they fire him with only, you know, five-plus defections, and then they say, whoever the next speaker is has to be approved by us, even though we're a tiny fraction of the caucus. That's the, that's the doomsday scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that, there was... That, that, that dog's not barking. When when we were in, you know, the 13th or the 14th or maybe the final 15th round of voting, I know that there was a lot of speculation that, you know, again, um, Don Bacon, who a lot of news organizations are sort of looking to as the anti-Matt Gates, the anti-Marjorie Taylor Greene, even though he is a Republican in Congress. Some people were saying, you know, like, why didn't somebody like Don Bacon sit down with Hakeem Jeffries and say, look, you guys have this many votes We've got this Main Street committee. We've got another 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 votes. Let's let's just circle around all this Kevin McCarthy craziness. You guys sign on. Make me the next speaker. And I promise you that, you know, the adults will be leading the room. But that didn't happen, Bill. You know, Bacon and others, the supposed moderates, the supposed Main Street coalition, they stuck with Kevin McCarthy through all the insanity. Why? Well, today's Republican moderate isn't all that moderate. Yeah, that's true. They're just not insane. Well, there you go. They realize that you have to to raise the debt limit. You have to keep the government open. You know, they they, they realize you got to do the basics. But they don't really relish the idea of breaking ranks. And having a rump group that is set aside from the bulk of the Republican Party, they're Republicans. Uh, they just want to keep things relatively, uh, relatively sane. Uh, so, and McCarthy is he's trying to be that guy. He's the one saying to Republicans, "Hey, don't don't heckle Biden. Behave yeah. yourselves." Uh, he was making all those shishy noises, and nobody was listening. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But the Bacon's want to make the McCarthy speakership work. They don't want to undercut him. He is ideologically in sync with them. Uh, and they're, they're trying to band together to keep the Matt Gaetzes at bay so they don't have too many spectacles like you saw last night. So far, the Gaetzes and the Taylor Greens are making a lot of noise, but they're not pressing McCarthy to take positions that he can't deliver on. And that's mm-hmm. when, if they if you take it that far, that's when McCarthy's going to really be in trouble. You mentioned raising the debt ceiling. I want to talk to you more about that because another one of the articles that uh, Bill has on the homepage for Washington Monthly is about Kevin McCarthy and the debt limit. Uh, We're going to ask him about that when Bill Sher and I return right after this. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 
Bill Scher is one of the reporters for Washington Monthly. You can read his work if you go to WashingtonMonthly.com. One of the articles he has on the homepage right now is about Kevin McCarthy and the debt ceiling, you know, the debt limit. Supposedly, Janet Yellen said, well, you know, we hit it, but I've got some money I can borrow from pocket A and put in pocket B. It's a stopgap measure. Guys, you got to get this done. I might be able to hold things together till June. If we're lucky, maybe July. Uh, but the, the vote has to take place to raise the debt ceiling. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, but isn't the debt ceiling the baseball bat that the radical right wanted to use to beat up Joe Biden And regardless of what they're saying now, they were going to go after Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and all of these programs. uh, And the Democrats were going to capitulate because they knew we had to raise the debt ceiling. And I thought Kevin McCarthy was a part of that faction. But no, your reporting uh, seems to uh, put a different spin on it. Tell me about it. Yeah, I, I don't think that's the way McCarthy looks at it. Uh, I, I think a, a lot of some Republicans were talking about the debt limit as a tool of leverage, but it really isn't. The, the, the debt limit is more like a hand grenade that you don't want in your hand when it explodes. Uh, there's trying to say, I'm going to blow up the global economy and let you do what I say makes you look like the, the bad guy, not the good guy. Uh, and so right now, Kevin McCarthy says, we're not going to default. Mitch McConnell says, we're not going to default. They don't see an advantage in threatening the possibility of default. So that, that sword has been put back, you know, in, in the holster, if you will. Uh, and uh, McCarthy, what, what the one thing that the Republican Party seems very consistent on is you got to cut spending some, somewhere. They don't know where, they don't know how much, but somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very hard for, you know, Biden is trying to say it has to be a clean debt limit increase, no negotiation around it. Uh, that's going to be a hard position for Biden to fully stick to because you do have to raise it at the end of the day. Uh, and even the most moderate Republican, like Don Bacon, says there's got to be some conditions here. Now, maybe you can finesse it rhetorically and pass things separately so they're not literally linked together. Uh, but so long as McCarthy isn't being specific, I think it gives Biden the ability to offer something that's very light. That's that, I mean, and look, spending is relatively high right now, historically speaking. Uh, so if you got to get out of this mess with a little bit of cuts, I mean, obviously, you don't, you know, if you're progressive, that's not something you really relish. But uh, you can go back a little bit without being, you know, uh, uh, back in the late 1990s when, uh, you know, sorry to get a little wonky here. Uh, but <laughs> federal Wonk away. A, we love that here. You know, federal spending as a share of GDP, generally speaking, has been around 20 percent for a long time. Uh, when the Republicans took over the Congress in, in the mid-90s, that ticked down into the teens. Uh, but it got back up around 20. Uh, then when Obama came in with the recession, it, it went up temporarily. But then it came then when they, they had the debt limit dances with Paul Ryan and John Maynard. That came back down around 20 again. Then with Trump and the pandemic, it shot up to 31 percent of GDP. That's the biggest it's been since World War II. Now it's down to 24. By, as that pandemic money has, has cycled through, 
the budgets come down somewhat. So Biden is correct in saying we are cutting the, the deficit. Spending is down, but it's still a bit higher than it has been over the past several decades, generally speaking. So if you've got that down to 23 or 22%, it's not like we're going into the dark ages mm-hmm. uh, 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 of, of conservatism by doing that. So I think Biden's got some room to give here. And if McCarthy is not being uh, is not being pushed by his right flank to do something really tough, I think they can find some middle ground. Well, he's not being pushed at this moment in time. I, you know, I think that one of Kevin McCarthy's strategies is to let the crazies, let them hold some hearings, you know, let them beat their drums or rather their pots and pans, let them wear their fur coats uh, to, you know, congressional speeches, whatever, um, because he knows that with a Democratic Senate and a Democratic president, that nothing that they do is going to go anywhere. And maybe, maybe the toddlers will get tired and want to take a nap, and then the grown-ups can actually get some stuff done. What do you think about that, Bill? Well, I think that's where we're essentially at right now. I mean, McCarthy is trying to strike a very calm, sober uh, persona. You know, let's, let's, let's find common ground. Let's not wait to the last minute. Let's not bump up against the deadline churching people in the hall. You know, he knows that every time Republicans have been crazy about this, I mean, we, you know, Obama had to do a deal with, with Boehner back in 2011 when the, when the Tea Party first took over Congress. Uh, they, they seemed really crazy. <laughs> they were talking about really, really a, a massive cuts, and Obama basically cut a deal saying, okay, we'll do those cuts, but over a long time frame, so they're spread out and not so painful. Uh, and then... And then Republicans got greedy and tried to do another you know, government shutdown thing uh, two years later and really looked like jerks. And Obama said, this is insane. I'm not, I'm not going to you know, defund Obamacare. I'm not going to defund Planned Parenthood. Uh, and Republicans looked out to lunch, and, they, and then they totally caved, and they ended up loosening some of the cuts that they had agreed upon you know, two years prior. Uh, so... Uh, Republicans had the only time Republicans have been that crazy since is when Trump was president and they and they instituted their own shutdown, which is truly nuts. Um, and they didn't have to get anything out of, out of that shutdown. So you know, McConnell doesn't like shutdowns. It's clear that McCarthy doesn't really like shutdowns and, and debt limit dramas. Uh, so uh, uh, they realize that there's not a lot to be gained by being the crazy person. You, you don't gain leverage. You don't gain public approval. Uh, you look like your amateurs. You look like your children. Uh, they want to avoid that problem going into the next election. But do you think because the crazies are crazy and they may not be looking at this as rationally as you just did? I've heard some predictions that um, the crazies are going to want a brief government shutdown, whether it's a day or two days, something like that. Basically, just it, I almost get the sense that they would do it just to show that they could, not that they really want to or that they're going to be holding out for some specific policy, but just kind of to remind everybody we're here and we wield power. Do you think that is likely that there will be when we finally get, you know, as as we often do to 1159 and a decision has to be made by midnight? that there will possibly be a government shutdown for at least a day or two. 
Well, there's, there's there's two things on the horizon here. There's there's a debt limit deadline and a government you know shutdown deadline. And the debt limit deadline comes first. The debt limit is going to be reached around June. I mean, they don't have a precise date on it because it depends on how well tre- Treasury is moving money around. But it's around June. And if you mess with that, I mean, I, I think there are some conservatives that think that they can get cute with it and maybe like rearrange who gets their debt payments first and so it wouldn't cause a global economic calamity. There might be some that want to try to test that theory. But what most folks say, you know, you don't, you don't want to risk that. You really don't want to have anyone ever, ever question the American government's commitment to pay a debt obligation. Because once you do that, your bond rating gets degraded, interest rates go up, and you never get that back. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I, don't, I don't think McCarthy wants to play with that. I don't think McConnell wants to play with that. And I don't expect that to actually be breached in June. Uh, so assuming they actually solve that problem by the, by the summer... Then you have the deadline on September 30th to pass spending bills to keep the government open. We've 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 breached that before. We've had shutdowns before. Uh, I've always argued that they don't they don't go well politically for the party that, that instigates it. But as a matter of like, can America survive a shutdown? Well, yeah, we've had they, they, they they're not good for the people who work for the government who lose their paychecks temporarily and aren't and they can't be confident that they're, they're going to get reimbursed afterwards. Well, generally have been, um, but and terrible people have vacation plans at a national park or, or what, what have you. Uh, but we we do survive them, so it, it wouldn't shock me if we have that problem in the fall for for a few days. Um, I, I, I think it would make Republicans look bad, not Democrats look bad. But dead limit, I think we're going. The signs look positive that we're going to avert that because McCarthy and McConnell are are saying the right thing. Well, I uh, I hope you're right. I do hope we avert that. I guess uh, we're just going to have to wait and see how crazy crazy is because you're absolutely right. I mean, anybody who looks at it historically, the party that shuts down government uh, usually gets punished at some point at the ballot box. We, we will see if that's a lesson that they've learned or whether they are just too crazy to care. Uh, Bill Sher, <laughs> reporter at The Washington Monthly. Uh, thank you, Bill. It was such a pleasure to talk to you, and I want to do it again soon. Good to talk to you as well. Take care. Okie doke. We are going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with uh, DePaul journalist in residence Chris Beery after this. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Uh, Yes, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? (laughs) Sorry, that was my anchorman voice. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, so we're having a couple of connection issues, but we'll keep working at it. Uh, In the meantime, we're on the telephone, the old-fashioned way. Oh, okay. The old-fashioned way sometimes is the best way. So what did you think of Biden's State of the Union? You know, I was uh, sort of pleasantly um, surprised. Uh, I've seen uh, Biden speak a lot um, over the years, and I think this was one of his better performances. Um, There was a a lot of energy. He was engaged. Um, He was in the moment. And um, I I think it was uh, as it went as well as probably the administration had hoped for. Um, So that was on the delivery in terms of the 
the message, I thought the really important part was the audience, that this was a speech designed not for the Beltway or for policy wonks or for people on Twitter, that this message was aimed straight at ordinary Americans um, who have concerns about the economy in the wake of COVID and inflation and supply chains, and as the polls show, Americans who are not enthusiastic about Biden. So it was aimed at them. It was aimed at white working class, rural and small town Americans who mainly voted for Trump. So I thought that the uh, the message was extremely well targeted. Um, it was also highly specific, um, specific things that Biden uh, is promising will make lives better. So for those reasons, I thought it, it, it worked out pretty well for, you know, what can often be a, a dull uh, Washington ritual. Yeah. You know, it, it often is a dull Washington ritual. Sometimes I have to tell you, Chris, I, I, I like to keep an eye on all of the background shots and the audience shots to see who has got their eyes closed, who seems to be drifting off, who's playing a game on their, on their phone. But, but I thought that even though it would, it went on a lot longer than I expected. It was like an hour and 20 minutes or something like that. I, I was riveted. I mean, this was Joe Biden at his oratorical best. And, you know, he's not really known as being the kind of speaker that holds you in the palm of his hand. But man, and, um, I, I've said this earlier in the show today, but my impression was that the heckling and the grumbling and the rumbling from the Republicans in the venue, they, they enter, that energized him. That that seemed to take him to the next level. Did you feel that? I, I did, and I noticed that several um, commentators describe Biden in the old Hubert Humphrey terms, which is the happy warrior. You know, he would, when he was heckled, he was smiling, and he yeah it for what it was, and he actually uh, was in the moment and able to uh, to respond. Um, not by name, but in certainly in tone and in message. So he was a happy warrior last night. You know, here is a man who was elected to the Senate at age 29, one of the youngest senators ever. So he has been in, you know, that building um, on and off for more than 50 years. Um, and so he's extraordinarily comfortable. He understands the dynamics and he played them as well as any president that I've seen in, in in modern times. I mean, I think Obama is certainly, you know, you could say was a more gifted orator, uh, even Bill Clinton, a more gifted orator. Uh, yet Biden was so comfortable in his own skin that I think it came across as, you know, authentic um, and genuine and that he came across as an ordinary Joe whose mission is to help ordinary Americans and not get caught up in silly culture wars that don't affect the, the lives of ordinary people. Yeah. And somebody said last night, one of the commentators after the speech said, tonight we got a glimpse of what Joe Biden is like when doors are closed and he's just sitting down negotiating something that this this kind of. Okay, you got something? You're coming at me with something? Okay, let me hear it. 
Okay, here's why I think this or that or the other thing or why we're going to do it this way. Did you did you feel that? I, I did. And I thought there was one moment that just kind of jumped out, which showed uh, Biden at sort of his political uh, best, because um, I'm sure it was planned. Uh, but when Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene started screaming at him and calling him a liar, uh, when he suggested that a few, a very few Republicans had threatened to cut Social Security uh, and, and, you know, uh, Green shouted out liar. Well, you know, Biden's next move then was really brilliant, where he invited Republicans who would support Social Security to stand up. That was a made for television moment. And it was really a beautiful kind of political trap because all of the Republicans stood up. Um, and so he had them on record and the negotiation was won at that very moment, live on television. He won the negotiation by doing that. So it was clearly um, planned. And yet I thought it worked brilliantly. You know, uh, earlier today, I was talking to Paul Glastris, who was a Clinton speechwriter, and he didn't think that that was planned. He said, you know, because I said, you know, you know, was it structured? Okay, we'll say this and the Republicans will get mad and then Joe will do this. And he said, you know, he said, I can't tell you for sure it wasn't. He said, but I can tell you that when you're writing a speech predicting how the other side is going to react it's a very inexact science. Like he was saying, like, you, you know, you wouldn't take that chance. You know what? Well, you wouldn't want to set Biden up for that, because then what if he doesn't get the reaction and then, you know, he can't go for it. Paul seemed to think that that was Joe Biden off the cuff. You don't think so? I, I don't. Um, I'd have to go back and look at the transcript. But I think asking Republicans to stand uh, was my guess is that that was a a pre-planned moment because, you know, it would be so clear, it would be so difficult for Republicans not to stand. Would you like to be the, you know, among a group of, let's say, you know, five or six Republicans who wouldn't stand for that and then face re-election, you know, in in 2024? So I, I think in terms of just putting Republicans on the spot over Social Security, um, I think that must have been planned. I, I don't know. That's just my my guess. Um, it is interesting that, you know, when he was heckled, Biden said, well, check it out. Check it out. Because, you know, people were calling him a liar. Republicans were calling yeah. him a liar. Get in touch with my office. They'll, you know, they'll yeah, give well, you the. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But Amer- Americans just have to go on Google and, you know, they can see where Rick Scott talked about sunsetting Social Security every five years, where Ron Johnson of Wisconsin talked about making it subject to an annual congressional vote. Can you imagine that? Mm -hmm. Uh, Where, you know, uh, Mike Lee, uh, who was shaking his head last night as if in some kind of feigned disbelief, he is on video saying he wanted to, quote, rip Social Security out by its roots. That is on video. So there is a, you know, a clear record, recent record of Republicans, not all of them, of course, or even a majority. But as Biden said, a few of them who have said on, you know, on videotape or in documents 
that they do want to either sunset Social Security or end it all together. So the facts are on the president's side in this case. They absolutely are. And yet even today, I've seen interviews with, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and a couple of the other farther right Republicans. And even today, they're saying, oh, Joe Biden's a liar. That was never our position. He's a, and they're still today sticking. Marjorie Taylor Greene was asked if she would, regretted yelling that he was a liar. She was like, no, no, he's absolutely a liar. And he lied. And I stand by that. Almost like I'm proud of, of what I did, that I heckled the president by calling him a liar. So, you know, Republicans do this. It's part of that whole disinformation kind of campaign. We didn't do that, Chris. You, you might have video, but you could be doctored, Chris. You never know. Um, we didn't, we didn't do that. We didn't say that. And if you found video that, that counter, counters my argument, well, then there must be something, you know, a foul at play here. Yeah. And even, you know, Ron Johnson has been, he was on the radio during the campaign last year talking about uh, Social Security, you know, uh, should be a part of the regular appropriations uh, process, which means that it could be held hostage by a faction any particular year. And I think that, you know, Biden is in the position of going to Americans during an election time and saying, oh, really, do you want Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert Voting on your Social Security benefit every single year. Um, now, that may, may not be technically eliminating Social Security, but there's no question that it puts it in jeopardy. Yeah. I'm talking to Chris Beery, former network newsman, current DePaul journalist in residence. We're going to take a quick break and be back with more right after this. Take Jonas Esposito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. This is Barry Maltz with the Small Business Radio Show. And like you, I've had a lot of businesses over the last 25 years. First, I went out of business. Then I got kicked out by my two partners. Then I sold my last business and I was able to pay back the bank the $1.3 million I owed them. And funny enough, my wife tells me I got her back just about the same time. Join me Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. right here on WCPT 820, where I show you how to get your small business unstuck, grow the company you've always wanted, and finally make the money that you deserve. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by DePaul journalist in residence, Chris Bury. Before he uh, was the journalist in residence, he was a network news journalist. Chris, when you talked to legislators, when you talked to senators or Congress people, I have to ask you in all seriousness, were there people who you thought were as crazy as the craziest ones we see now, was there a, a Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Lauren Boebert, a Matt Gates, a Paul Gosar? Um, is it just that they, the ones that are currently in front of our face, seem so egregious because we have to watch them every day? Has this always been something that existed on Capitol Hill? Not to this degree. Um, you know, back uh, in the in the 90s when I was in Washington and covering the Clinton administration and the Whitewater and the Lewinsky scandals, there were Republicans on the Hill who were outrageous. Uh, I'm thinking of 
for example, Dan Burton of Indiana, um, who was pushing, you know, just wild conspiracy cases about, you know, Vince Foster being killed by the Clintons and just crazy stuff like that. But that was before social media. And now we have this phenomenon where absolute nobodies like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, of course, lost her committee assignments before this particular Congress because she was so outrageous, uh, where Lauren Boebert, who you know won by 500 votes in a rural Colorado county, uh, Paul Gosar, um, you know of Arizona, you know we have people now who have built social media followings, and perhaps more importantly, have built fundraising operations. So the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world know that the more outrageous their behavior and the more they can tweet about it or put it on Facebook, the more money they can raise and the richer that they can get. Um, So I think this dynamic of social media and fundraising has introduced a new toxic element into our, our politics which is largely to blame for the divisions that we're seeing, or at least, you know, hugely to, to blame, if not predominantly. And I think that is what difference. Yeah, we've, all, we, we've always had the crazies, uh, but they never, you know, emerged in the media enough to be powerful and taken seriously. So because she gets a lot of attention and because when she gets a lot of attention, she raises a lot of money, do you suspect the fact that so many people are laughing at her today and social media is filled with these pictures from last night of her pointing her finger and yelling i mean she is really an object of ridicule do you think that bothers her or is she like yeah baby bring it on the more the more (laughs) views the more clicks the more money you know, that's a great question. I, I did read something the other day where she had considered leaving Congress. I don't know how, you know, thoroughly that was reported. To me, as a, as a you know, human being, one would have to get embarrassed. But I guess the most successful of these people have, you know, uh, a, a superpower, which is they're completely shameless. <laughs> you know, they don't have any shame. And... You know, the best example, of course, is George Santos, who has so little shame or or no shame at all that he got to the, you know, the the Capitol early so he could get a seat near the aisle. So he would be on television um, when the president was walked down the the aisle to the uh, dais. And, you know, you saw this incredible confrontation where, you know, Senator Mitt Romney came over to him and tried to shame him, saying, basically, you know, you have no business being here. Yeah, you don't belong here. You don't belong here. And so, you know, that that lack of shame um, is working to the advantage of people like George Santos and Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and, and Lauren Boebert, because they don't appear to have any shame. I assumed that they had assigned seats, uh, but I do know that he definitely knew where the camera was and was standing there. And I almost hated it when they the networks took that shot because he was like swiveling around like 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 he was trying to find somebody who would acknowledge him or talk to him. And pretty much everybody was like pret- they were like pretending he was invisible. Um, 
And I almost, almost, almost felt sorry for him. It was just so awkward. I could hardly stand it. <laughs> you have more empathy than I do, Joan, <sighs> because uh, I didn't feel sorry for him. And I also thought it, it represented something else, which is the weakness of Kevin McCarthy as speaker. Because a strong speaker with a strong whip um, or, you know, a, a strong deputy would have sat uh, Santos down, you know, the day before and said, okay, pal you're going to be in the back row we don't want to see your face on television you know you, you don't have any committee assignments um we're trying to you know make this um at, at least a, a moment of decorum for most republicans so do us a favor and you know take a seat in the back and that mccarthy either didn't do that or didn't think about it or santos you know, defied him. Who knows what really happened to me suggests that McCarthy really doesn't have power over these, you know, wild outliers in his party. One of the people I follow on social media uh, got a look at a I don't know if it was a text or a memo that Kevin McCarthy sent around and they posted it and they were saying it's like this is like, you know, kind of instructions that you give for the kindergartners and the first graders. And it was like, remember, there's going to be lots of microphones and a lot of them are going to be hot. And remember, if you have your phone, people are going to be able to see, you know, what you're looking at. And it was I guess I don't know. I guess he felt he had so much on his plate he couldn't get around to. And you, George Santos, please don't embarrass us if you possibly can. Uh, it was just it was just amazing. And then you, I'm sure you saw the interview with George Santos today and he was defiant. He said, yeah, Mitch Rom Mitt Romney said, um, you know, I don't belong here that I should go to the back. He says, you know, people have t been telling me I don't belong my whole life. I never listened to him before and I'm not going to listen to him now. Oh, poor George <laughs> Santos. You know, he's such a victim uh, in this. Um, and I, I really can't wait until, you know, the the investigation from the Republican uh, prosecutor, uh, you know, attorney in Long Island, uh, and not to mention the FBI, you know, dig into his his background to see whether crimes have been committed, because, you know, he he is uh, I mean, it, it's just outrageous. Uh, you know, on one hand, on the other hand, you know, the, the administration must be just loving this. Right. That the, the, the face of the Republican Party and national media, you know, or, or the faces are George Santos and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. I mean, that is just wonderful for in the administration. But it's terrible for us, you know, as as citizens uh, and as, as people who want the government to solve problems. It, it really is outrageous that these, you know, freak show people have the kind of, um, I guess, attention-getting power that they do have. Yeah, I, I guess so. And I've never seen a State of the Union where the Speaker was trying to shush and say no, no, no <laughs> behind the <laughs> yeah. President's back. Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm speaking with Chris Bury. He is the journalist in residence at DePaul University. Uh, there was some other news today that I haven't gotten to yet that I want to talk uh, about with Chris, which is uh, there was a meeting today. There was a there was a hearing today. It was a hearing of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, and uh, it was one of those clown car things. We've got some sound. Chris and I are going to talk about that right after this. 
There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I was perusing social media today, as I as I often do, and somebody posted, you know, House Committee meeting now. AOC is about to, like, bring the fire. And, of course, I pulled up C-SPAN right away because... I have C-SPAN tabbed on my computer for just these kinds of occasions. Took me a little digging to find the uh, House Oversight and Accountability Committee meeting, um, but I wasn't disappointed. Now, this committee meeting today was called by some of the Republicans, the new Republicans in power, because they wanted Twitter to answer for the fact that the Washington Post said, we've got a computer. Some people say it might possibly be Hunter Biden's laptop. You know, nobody could verify the story, but everybody wanted, especially the New York Post, wanted to post about it. And Twitter was like, nah, you don't got the goods. We're not going to let you do it. And the Republicans have never forgotten that slight. And by God, people are going to pay for it. Uh, listen to what AOC had to say about these, the committee today and how the Republicans were basically holding the government hostage. Listen to this. I'd like to submit to the record a Washington Post article now warning about Hunter Biden laptop disinformation, the guy who leaked it. Here's the deal. Before I even get into my questions, I think that the, the story here with the New York, uh, with the Washington Post reporting is that what they're saying right here, when the New York Post first reported in October 2020 that it had obtained contents of a laptop computer allegedly owned by Joe Biden's son Hunter, there was an immediate roadblock faced by other news outlets that hoped to corroborate reporting, as many did. The newspaper wasn't sharing what it obtained. New York Post had this alleged information and was trying to publish it without any corroboration, without any backup information. They were trying to publish it to Twitter. Twitter did not let them, and now they were upset. I believe that political operatives who sought to inject explosive disinformation with the Washington Post couldn't get away with it. And now they're livid, and they want the ability to do it again. They want the ability to inject this again. So they've dragged a social media platform here in Congress. They're weaponizing the use of this committee so that they can do it again. A whole hearing about a 24-hour hiccup in a right-wing political operation. That is why we are here right now. And it is, it, it's just a, an abuse of public resources, an abuse of public time. We could be talking about health care. We could be talking about bringing down the cost of prescription drugs. We could be talking about abortion rights, civil rights, voting rights. But instead, we're talking about Hunter Biden's half-fake laptop story. I mean, this is an embarrassment. Paul, journalist in residence. Chris Beery, what do you think about that? She has a point, doesn't she? She sure does. <laughs> You know, just to kind of back up for our, our listeners what this is all about. So this hearing is focused very narrowly on October 2020, as Representative Cortez uh, said, um, where 
Twitter decided not to run a story from the New York Post that it couldn't verify about Hunter Biden's hard drive. Um, And by the way, this New York Post story back then uh, was so sketchy at the time that none of the reporters in the New York Post story would agree to being on the byline. It was a non-byline story. Other reputable news organizations, um, including Fox News and Washington Post and others, said, okay, if this is so explosive, give us a copy of the copy of the hard drive that you have, and we'll try to authenticate it and report it. And guess what? The New York Post refused to hand it over. And not only that, guess what news organization would not run the story back then? Fox News, because it simply could not be verified. So this whole hearing today is cooked up to try to, you know, portray that there was some incredible collusion between uh, Biden's campaign and Twitter, you know, to, uh, quote, censor uh, the, the, the truth, when all it was was Twitter making an editorial decision, hey, you know, we're not going to run this story. Oh, and by the way, we're still worried about what happened in 2016 when the Russians hacked into the Democratic National Committee and John Podesta emails, and we were the victims on Twitter of a disinformation campaign. So we're going to be a little cautious. Uh, That's what they did. And so they're being called on the carpet for acting as reasonable, mature, responsible adults. Yeah. And I have a feeling we're going to see more of these hearings. Um, I want to share with you, uh, Jamie Raskin was also on this committee a Democrat who did so well during the impeachment process. And he also, I, I didn't pull this sound clip, but he said much the same thing as, as AOC, that that this was just a ridiculous reason to have a hearing. It was a complete waste of time. But he also worked in, he had a little uh, education for the folks, um, probably not just the folks in the gallery, but probably for his fellow committee members about the First Amendment, what it is and what it isn't. Listen to this. In America, private media companies can decide what to publish or how to curate content however they want. If Twitter wants to have nothing but tweets commenting on New York Post articles run all day, it can do that. If it makes such tweets mentioning New York Post uh, never see the light of day, they can do that, too. That's what the First Amendment means. Twitter can ban Donald Trump for inciting violent insurrection against the union as he was uh, uh, impeached by the House of Representatives and his 57 of 100 senators found he did. And it can also try to resurrect his political career. Elon Musk just purchased Twitter and therefore controls its editorial content. And among the first things he did was to fire some people, hire some people, denounce some prior decisions, and reinstate an unrepentant and still clearly lying Donald Trump to the platform. Those decisions, however heroic or imbecilic you think they might be, are protected by the First Amendment in the United States of America. Um, Chris, if you would like, I can pull off that soundbite and share it with you so you can play it to your students. Um, oh, a nice little lesson there. What do you think? Yeah, no, and people really misunderstand the First Amendment because Republicans have been throwing around this word censorship. You know, Twitter is censoring. Facebook is censoring. Just to be perfectly clear, 
private organizations cannot censor. Censorship is something that only the government can do. Private organizations can make editorial decisions about what they want to publish and what they don't because, uh, as Congressman Raskin eloquently pointed out, that is what the First Amendment says. So censor is a word that should be really restricted to government attempts to control information. And this is what the Republicans are getting at. They're saying that there was a collusion between the Biden campaign, which, by the way, was not in government, um, and Twitter. And they produced no evidence of that. Did the Biden campaign complain? Yes. Um, You know, I worked in many national political campaigns where, guess what, the campaigns complained to, you know, my bosses at ABC News. That's par for the course. But there's a moment today where I think it really backfired. And that is where uh, a Twitter executive testified under oath that the White House, on behalf of President, then President Trump, called Twitter executives and asked them to remove a tweet critical of him. That tweet was from uh, Chrissy Teigen, uh, the singer, um, it was a very profane father. Her husband, tweet, and, John Legend, is the singer. She's a, a oh, model and a, She's the and, model. A, okay. and, a, I, yeah, and a chef. Yeah, I'm sorry. My that's my uh, pop culture is my Achilles heel. So <laughs> and up. just if, so, in the interest, I know it's that's everybody says it that way. Her name is actually pronounced Tigan. Um, though okay. no one okay. says it that way. So, okay. you know, so and anyway, so it's Kissy, Chrissy, Chrissy Tigan, right? So she you can look it up. I'm not going to say it on the air because it's it, it's profane. She, you know, tweeted something nasty about Trump. Trump has his you know minions call Twitter. This is the sitting president of the United States. So if you want to talk about government interference with Twitter, there is a real example. And there was no no evidence presented that, you know, the Biden campaign, you know, forced Twitter to do anything. Uh, And besides that, the whole matter was resolved in a couple of weeks. I mean, uh, Twitter said it made a mistake. I don't think it did. But Jack Dorsey, the CEO, said, oh, we we shouldn't have done that. We shouldn't have cut links to the post. And, you know, they were restored 14 days later. So, you know, I think the phrase much ado about nothing was kind of invented for this moment today. Yeah. One thing, again, that I didn't uh, pull off in a clip, one of the uh, Twitter people who was in charge, formerly in charge of stuff like um, speech, um, one of the things that she was asked about was, you know, there used to be certain phrases that would trigger uh, Twitter to act like, you know, somebody tweeting, go back where you came from and phrases that were clearly designed to attack immigrants and Donald Trump put out a tweet that had like, you know, you don't belong here. Go back where you came from. And it was flagged and she took it to her boss and her boss said uh, overruled her and said, no, let it stand. And within two days, Twitter had a new policy written. And that phrase that was before something that would cause a red flag, go back where you came from, was removed from problematic phrases. So not only, I mean, you know, I don't know what they did with with Chrissy, but in this instance, Twitter actually changed their policy to accommodate Donald Trump. 
And I think it was AOC who said, you know, and, and you tell me that there's n- that the right wing is treated poorly by social media. Um, it's it was a really interesting hearing. Uh, let's uh, let's take a break. I'm talking to Chris Beery, DePaul journalist in residence. We are going to be back with more right after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa! You feel that right away. It's just refreshing. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Now back to Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. A DePaul journalist in residence, Chris Beery, and I are talking about this meeting, uh, committee meeting that took place this morning of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee. Uh, Chris, I actually have that sound that I was just referencing. You know, the Republicans basically wanted to hold this whole committee meeting because I don't know. They, I don't know. I just, I just, I give up. They, they wanted to bang the drum. They wanted to show the world that they're mistreated and they wanted, you know, social media companies to let them do whatever they want. Okay. All well and good. But the basic argument that right wing keeps making over and over again is that mainstream media and social media are not fair to Republicans. They're not fair to conservatives. And uh, the interchange that I was talking to Chris about a moment ago, we we have it. It's um, AOC talking to a former uh, Twitter executive about how they did bend over backwards to accommodate the right. Listen to this. I'd like to show you a tweet posted by former President Trump about my colleagues and I on July 14th, 2019. It says in part, quote, Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came? Then come back and show us how it's done. These places need your help badly. You can't leave fast enough. I'm sure that Nancy Pelosi would be very happy as quickly to work out free travel arrangements. A day or two after that, uh, Donald Trump publicly uh, incited, you know, violence at a rally, uh, targeting four congresswomen, including myself, saying, go back to where you came from. Uh, Ms. Navarro, as I understand it, you are uh, the most senior member of Twitter's content moderation team, or a senior member of Twitter's content moderation team when this was posted. Um, as part of your responsibilities, did you review this tweet? Yes, it was my team's responsibility to review these tweets. And what did you conclude? My team made the recommendation that for the first time we find Donald Trump in violation of Twitter's policies and use the public interest interstitial. For the first time? Yes. And at the time, Twitter's policy included a specific example when it came to banned abuse uh, against immigrants as they specifically included the phrase, go back to your country or or go back to where you came from, correct? Yes, that was specifically included in the content moderation guidance as an example. You brought this up to the vice president of trust and safety, Del Harvey, correct? I did, yes. And she overrode your assessment, didn't she? Yes, she did. Um, And something interesting happened after she overrode your assessment. A day or two later, Twitter seemed to have changed their policies, didn't they? Yes, that trope, go back to where you came from, was removed from the content moderation guidance as an example. So Twitter changed their own policy after the president violated it um, in order to potentially accommodate his tweet? Yes. Thank you. Um, So much for bias against right wing on Twitter. 
AOC bringing the heat. Um, but, you know, she's not wrong. And the, let's step back a second. The larger issue, I think that sooner or later, Republicans are going to figure out that holding these committee meetings maybe isn't their best move. What do you think, Chris? It seems that today um, is a good example of them backfiring on on the main point, and the main point that they had hoped to bring was again some kind of a you know a deep state or a collusion between Democratic operatives or the Biden campaign and Twitter. And in fact, that wasn't proven. But we did learn just the opposite, as we've seen in, in both of these examples, right? Um, AOC. You know, finding out in committee that, yes, Twitter changed its policy for Donald Trump. And in the previous example, um, that Donald Trump asked Twitter to remove a tweet that was critical of him. In both of these cases, this is just what the Republicans are complaining about, right? Government interference, in their words, censorship. The big question for Republicans, I think, is this. Do you want the government to be in control of social media or not? You know, that is the question that they need to be asked, because what they're inferring is that this, you know, should somehow be banned. But as Congressman Raskin said in in the quote that you played earlier, these are private companies and they can do what they want with their content. um, And it's not censorship. Uh, But to your question, I don't think that they won any big points today, except they get to wave the Hunter Biden trope, which to them is like Hillary's emails in 2016. Mm -hmm. It's the holy grail, right? So they love just Hunter, 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 laptop, laptop, laptop. They want to get that seeped out as if those words signify something, you know, illegal and evil. Uh, and that's the larger purpose today is to get keep playing this Hunter Biden card uh, because they think it's going to rev up their base. That's the only thing that I can see, you know, that the only possible justification for this stuff is we want to throw red meat to our folks. Do you think that there is any scenario where the base wakes up one day and says, you know, We've been talking about that laptop for a long time. Why am I not? Why is the story not progressing? Why am I not learning that there were state secrets on it or, you know, backroom deals discussed on the laptop? Do you think the base at any point wakes up and says, you know, it's been years. Don't we know what's on that damn laptop yet? You know, I I think it's already happening, and I think we saw some evidence of it in the midterm uh, elections in 2022 when, you know, Republicans gained only nine seats. That was really a historic loss for them um, in a midterm election. And we saw where Trump appointed uh, or Trump favored candidates lost in virtually all statewide elections except one, J.D. Vance in Ohio. Everywhere else, you know, Blake Masters in Arizona, everywhere else they lost. So I think, you know, the shine uh, has already come off of of, uh, the MAGA Republicans. But they're still, you know, arguably in the high 20 percent, low 30 percent range. 
But the great thing here, I think, for the Biden administration is the contrast. So last night in the State of the Union, we saw a president being specific about how he is going about solving problems. Um, Drug prices for uh, Medicare, um, insulin prices, bridges being built with the help of, of Republicans. So on the one hand, the contrast is... A, a president who may not be terribly popular and who is old, yet he is solving specific problems in many cases with the help of Republicans. Then on the other hand, you have Republicans who basically are stuck in this rut of Hunter Biden and these social um, you know, war things like critical race theory and you, you know, banning books. And so the contrast couldn't be any cleaner. And I don't think that that works to the, the advantage of, of Republicans. Do you think that there will be any big impact about Meta letting uh, Donald Trump back on Facebook and Instagram? I know there was a lot of uh, hand-wringing when that announcement was made, but he doesn't seem to be utilizing those platforms. He seems to be sticking with Truth Social. So is it a tempest in a teapot? You know, I, I think that does remain to be seen. I mean, he's been reinstated on Twitter now for, what, a couple of months, and he hasn't really posted. He's stuck, as you, you said, to Truth Social. Um, you know, Facebook uh, is another matter. Um, but his campaign, certainly, you know, the only fair way to describe it is sputtering. Um, you know, he has had one rally in, in South Carolina in a very safe place. Um, but outside of that, it's not gaining any traction. He's not doing terribly well uh, in any pollings and uh, polling. And as we know, there is just a storm gathering. And we're going to see, you know, within a month or so, you know, my expectation is that the Fulton County Grand Jury is going to indict uh, Trump and many of his uh, allies in a, in a voter fraud scheme. And then some point later, the Justice Department is also going to weigh in. But, you know, Fannie Willis told the judge last month that her decision is imminent. Um, and that probably means that it's going to be um, heard by a regular grand jury within the month. Um, so he's got a lot on his plate. <laughs> and, yeah, I guess you know, so. Yeah, I mean, I just don't. I mean, we'll see about Facebook. So far, not much. Chris Beery, DePaul journalist in residence, thank you so much. It is always so much fun to talk to you, my friend. Thank you for being here. Always a pleasure, Joan. Thank you. That's going to do it for me. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. Santita Jackson kicks us off tomorrow at 6 a.m., and I will see you at 2. Until then, stay safe, my friends. Have a great evening. Good night.